So I've always enjoyed the story of the woman who comes into the kitchen on a Sunday morning, and there's her husband eating a bowl of cereal in his pajamas. And she says, honey, you better hurry and get dressed. We're going to be late for church. And he said, I don't think I'm going to church today. She said, give me one good reason why you wouldn't go to church today. He said, I'll do better than that. I'll give you two. Number one, I don't like anybody up there at that church. And number two, I don't think anybody up there likes me. Besides, you give me one good reason why I should go to church today. She said, I'll do better than that. I'll give you two. Number one, the Bible says you should go. And number two, you're the preacher. So (laughs) I love going to church. In these last five weeks, even though I love getting to study and visit other churches, I missed being with my church family at the hills. And as I said, when we had that long season that we couldn't gather together, I learned many things. One thing I learned during the pandemic is that in a crisis, people really do like toilet paper. Isn't that amazing? Was there anything about the symptoms of COVID that made us need more toilet paper? But when Americans are in a crisis, toilet paper is our security blanket and our comfort food. The other thing I learned was that too much family togetherness is not always a good thing. That some families, we thrive better when we have about six to eight hours a day, five days a week, not together. But maybe the thing we all learn the most is that we don't have to leave home to get most of what we want and do most of what we need. We learn we can work at home. We can do school at home. Certainly we can shop at home. And we even did church at home. And we all understand why that was necessary. The pandemic necessitated the closing of many businesses and institutions that we never thought we would see closed. Schools, restaurants, retail businesses. And you remember the debate early on when we decided some things have to stay open, no matter how bad it gets. Hospitals have to stay open. Grocery stores have to stay open. Gas stations have to stay open. And so we decided some things must stay open because we said they were essential. Now, the reality is most churches, including ours, suspended their in-person gatherings for a season, motivated by Jesus directed to love our neighbors. So what churches had to do, many of them on the spot, is pivot and do their best to pour into online offerings like they never have before. And honestly, I think our church was able to pivot more smoothly than many because we were already heavily invested in online offerings and that hasn't changed. And by the way, I just have to take a moment to say, I am so thankful that we have a team of people here at the Hills who are tasked with and committed to producing excellent online presence for our church. And I hear from people across the world and how much that means. We have people in our church who, because of their health conditions, can never get out of the house and they can stay connected because of online church. There are many who are taking care of people with underlying conditions, and they don't need to be out yet, and this is the way they can stay connected to our church. I hear, for example, from members of the military, 
And their only chance to have spiritual nourishment on a Sunday is to watch our church online. Right now, around the world, there are missionaries in different time zones. And watching us is the way they get spiritually fed on the field. I am so thankful for the ways that we can bless the global community of Christ through our online presence. But hear me. I don't think that what is vital for some should become normal for most. And I'm convinced that the pandemic increased and accelerated a trend that was already beginning where more and more Christians are devaluing the importance of gathering together as a church family. Now, I know we still haven't defeated this pandemic, and we're still praying about that. But what we are seeing is more businesses now, and even more schools, requiring in-person attendance. Well, here's the thing. Churches can't do that. I tell people that I lead a volunteer army. Nobody salutes me. Although I have received the occasional hand gesture. <laughs> so what I want to do in this series is ask this question. Just how essential is church? And now, what do we mean by the word church? Now, I, I know that sometimes we'll say, let's go to church, and that's not really how the word is used in the Bible. We all know church is not a building. And I'm not even talking about the universal body of Christ. When I'm using the word church, I'm using the word the way it is overwhelmingly used in the New Testament. And here's what I mean. I'm talking about a local community of believers who gather regularly and commit together to help each other follow Jesus. That's how the New Testament uses the word church. A local community of believers who have decided we're going to get together regularly to help each other follow Jesus. Just how essential is a fellowship like that? Because I'm sensing that today many people have settled for what I would just call kind of a spiritual equivalent of Uber Eats. The church is a thing I order when I want it, where I want it, how I want it, and it's delivered to my house. And the New Testament knows nothing of a kind of discipleship that doesn't include a commitment to a specific faith family. You know who knows this better than anybody else? Our brothers and sisters around the world who are living daily with the very real threat of persecution. Sometimes we forget about them. That today, this first day of the week, August the 8th, there are millions of Christians who are risking their lives together with their church family. Harassment, 
imprisonment, even death. And they're getting together with other believers out of mutual allegiance to Jesus. Because to them, meeting is essential. They don't know how to follow Jesus alone. In the West, we make everything something to consume. I have a question for you. Has church become a commodity more than a community? Something we just order whenever we feel like it. Or, or to put it another way, is church a product to be consumed or a people to be joined? I hear many people, well, my church is just a good cup of coffee at my kitchen table. My church is my patio. My church is my coffee shop. And we have turned church into something we purchase or consume or order. It's become an event that we get when we want it instead of a people that we serve and commit to. And I can already hear the cynic out there thinking, there he goes again. Those pastors, all they care about is numbers. They're all on ego trips. All they want to do is preach for a big church. I got news for you. I already preach for a big church. <laughs> what I care about is making and growing followers of Jesus. And the New Testament gives me no instruction on how to do that without church being essential. You grow disciples, you grow churches. So what I want to do in the next three weeks is I want to make the case, I hope theologically, that church is essential. Again, what do I mean by church? I'm talking about how the way the Bible uses the word. I'm talking about a local community of people that commit to each other to get together to help each other follow Jesus. That's the word church. And I'm going to make a case it is essential to your faith, to your growth, and to the mission of God. But I want to start the series with this conviction. Church is essential to Jesus. That God gave all authority to Jesus. And Jesus used that authority to establish a church. The well-known passage in Matthew 16 speaks to this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now would you please notice, 
what Jesus did not say is upon this rock, upon this confession of my Messiahship, upon the confession that I'm the Son of God, I'm going to build a bunch of Christians. He said, I'm going to build a church. The church wasn't launched by Jesus as an experiment or as a trial, but as a permanent and critical component of his redemptive agenda. And by the way, do you think Jesus didn't know that his plan would have issues? It's become so popular today to post or blog or podcast about how hypocritical and weak and pitiful the church is. Do you think Jesus did not know the church would be flawed? There has never been a pristine, perfect, ideal church. The church gets started in Acts 2, and by Acts 5, Jesus is already putting hypocrites to death. By Acts 6, you already have division and conflict in the body. The church Jesus established will always be local faith communities full of flawed disciples in desperate need of grace. And so, did Jesus make a mistake? If the church is always going to be flawed, always going to be weak, always going to struggle, Jesus, did you make a mistake? Back in the late 1800s in Paris, they were having a world exposition and they commissioned an architect to build something in honor and the people hated it. They said it was monstrous and they wanted it torn down as soon as the exposition was over. But Alexander Gustav Eiffel believed in this tower. He believed it was destined for greatness. I think history's proved him right. I believe the same thing is true of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, here's the reality. I could have done a lot of things in my life. I've given my life to a local church because I am convinced by the words of Jesus that nothing brings the kingdom of God into a community like a local church. I got to experience that last week. I was at Colorado Springs and I was at Trace Church and got to preach there. And maybe you've heard that name because Trace Church is one of the churches that we helped plant as a part of our 2020 vision. Next month, Trace Church will celebrate its fifth birthday. They are already at 600 people gathering weekly. And here's what you need to know. Over half of that number were not walking with God five years ago. And they're walking with God today, not because of a podcast and not because of a televangelist, but because somebody started a church. Paul said in Ephesians 3, Now all glory to God, who's able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is glorified through Christ and through the church. And I think that makes church pretty essential. So, like I said, the next three weeks, I am going to make a case for why church is essential to your faith and to our community. But the big idea today is pretty simple. Church is essential to Jesus. If Jesus matters to you, 
then your engagement in church should matter. And so, let's close with these three thoughts about Jesus and the church. And here's the first. Jesus is the church's owner. I will build my church. Church doesn't belong to you. Church doesn't belong to me. We need to remember that the next time we're tempted to criticize a church. It's not your church. It's not my church. The church belongs to Jesus because he paid for it with his own blood. By the way, have you ever noticed how something's value is often determined by who owns it? You ever gone to an auction and paid a ridiculous price for some sporting item because some great athlete used to own it? Or some instrument because some rock star used to play it? A cigar box because it used to be in the Oval Office. Some of you have things at your home right now that your parents or your grandparents gave you and, and you cherish them because of who used to own it. Jesus owns the church. That should make it valuable. And now here's the thing. I'm not going to pretend the church has always worn his name well. Sometimes the church embarrasses the name of Jesus. But Jesus never takes his name away from the church. I hear people say, well, I'll tell you, I love Jesus, but I'm just done with the church. Jesus never says that. Jesus has never said, I am done with the church. He owns the church, and he never withdraws his name. And because he owns the church, Jesus alone sets the agenda for the church, which is to push back the gates of hell and establish the reign of God all over the world, which means that Jesus not only is the church's owner, but Jesus is the church's builder. Now, there are many organizations that have a Christ affiliation for which we're proud. But Jesus never promised to build a school. He never promised to build a business. He never even promised to build a Christian nation. He said, I'm going to build a church. It's his chosen instrument for accomplishing his mission. It's his plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. And by the way, you can't accuse Jesus of planning small. <laughs> In the face of great opposition, knowing the gates of hell would oppose his church, Jesus said, my church has the potential and the impact to change the world. All the powers of hell will not conquer it. And because Jesus is behind the church, the church always has a future ahead of it. That's why I'm not a doomsayer. That's why I don't read all these posts about how the church has no future and the church is dying and the church is about to be gone. You can't kill the church. You know why? Because you can't kill the builder. They tried that once and he didn't stay dead. I think sometimes we're tempted to only look at the church through the small lens of a primarily white American culture. I want you to remind you, the overwhelming majority of Christians in the world aren't American and they're not white. The church is flourishing throughout the world. Take Africa. 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. Today, there are 685 million Christians in Africa. There are twice as many Christians in Africa as there are people in the United States. The church is exploding in Asia. By 2030, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States. 
The church is exploding in the Muslim world. In fact, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, the nation on earth right now where the church is growing the fastest is Iran. The church always has a future because Jesus is the builder of the church. Yes, the church is in a war, but it's a war that's already been decided, and I know who wins. And one more thing. Just remember this. Jesus is the church's lover. You cannot love Jesus without loving what he loves. And Jesus loves his church. He doesn't love a flawless church. He loves a church to make her flawless. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians 5. He does a strange thing. He uses marriage as a metaphor to help us understand how Christ feels about his church. He says Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body, which is the church. So husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make it belong to God. Christ used the word to make the church clean by washing it with water. He died so that he could give the church to himself like a bride in all her beauty. He died so that the church could be pure and without fault, with no evil or sin or any other wrong thing in it. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. The man who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but feeds it and takes care of it. And that is what Christ does for the church. Jesus doesn't love a perfect church. He loves his church to perfect it. So about five years ago, a woman named Hannah was in a car crash, and she suffered some very, very serious external and internal injuries, and it was five weeks before her wedding, and she was determined to go through with the wedding, but the problem was she wasn't able to stand, and so on the day of the ceremony, her father got her in a wheelchair, and he pushed her halfway down the aisle, and then her groom, Stuart, came, and he picked Hannah up, and he carried his bride, to the place where they could be married. And that's what Jesus is doing. His struggling, weak bride, Jesus is determined to get to the wedding ceremony. And there is a wedding coming, my friends. Jesus is going to marry his church. So just remember this. But when you're thinking how essential is church, just remember, church is Jesus' ideal. Church is Jesus' passion. Church is Jesus' strategy. Next week, we'll talk about why the church should matter to us. But this week, I just want you to remember one thing. Church really matters to Jesus. Jesus loves his church. And one day he's going to come back for his church. And at the wedding supper, nobody is going to ask if the church is essential. So pray with me. So Father, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds in the weeks ahead to what you want to teach us from your word about how we live out this thing called discipleship, how we live out this thing called following 
Jesus and how we do it with our faith family. And my prayer, God, is this. It's not that the people listening to these sermons will agree with me. My prayer is they'll agree with Jesus. My prayer is that we will see the church the way Jesus sees the church. That we will love the church the way Jesus loves the church. And that we won't settle for anything less than what Jesus wants his church to be. And Father, one last thing. All over the world right now, we have brothers and sisters risking their lives to get together with other brothers and sisters to say, keep following Jesus. He's worth it. And we pray for them. We pray for their protection and for their courage and that they will stay faithful. And I also pray they will encourage us. For Jesus' sake and for his glory and in his name we pray all this. Amen.